Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the first part of our annual showcase event, Exploring Listed Private Capital, Resilience and Opportunity. I'm Chief Executive of LPEC, and we're the international group for listed private capital companies. We've got three companies presenting today, London-listed NB Private Equity Partners, Columbia Thread Needle Investments, also London-listed, and Brussels-listed GIMPF, showing immediately that listed private capital comes in many different forms. Before we start, I just want to mention part two of this event, same time on Thursday, when we'll be joined by three more and different companies. So if you haven't registered for Thursday, please do. We've got a wide ranging audience today, but at least some of you might be new to listed private capital. So I'm going to start with some context, what listed private capital is and why it should matter. Those of you who know already um, all of this, please bear with me for just a few minutes. Listed private capital is the way in which all investors and particularly smaller retail and private wealth investors can invest in private capital. They can buy and sell shares in listed private capital exactly as they would any other share. Private capital, as many of you will know, makes investments in private companies, providing finance to help them invest and grow. It's an important option for growing businesses as an alternative to bank funding or a public market listing often filling the gap where banks are unable to lend or a public markets listing is unsuitable, perhaps because the company is too small. What listed private capital does is make the private widely publicly available. Private capital would otherwise be confined to large investors, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, or large private foundations, for example. These have the resources to invest large minimum sums directly into big so-called limited partnership funds and are willing to have their money locked in for five to 10 years. Smaller investors, however, want to be able to invest smaller sums and also to cash out when they choose. So listed private capital works for them like this. When an investor buys listed private capital, they'll be either buying a share in a listed private capital company itself that manages investments, or in a fund managed by a private capital company that then invests it, or in a fund of funds that works with many private capital managers taking stakes in a range of funds. And as we'll see today and on Thursday, no two companies or funds are really exactly alike. Each has its own flavor. Some specialize in loans, listed private credit, rather than taking equity stakes, listed private equity, Funds may have a particular geographical sector focus or are interested in investing in companies at earlier stages of development, listed venture capital, or later listed buyouts. There's truly something for everyone. In all this diversity, they share a commitment to creating value through active investing, putting time into finding opportunities with potential, and in the case of listed private equity, for example, providing specialist expertise and management support to the companies they select. So why does it matter um, to us that you can provide access to private capital um, to small investors? Well, performance and diversification. 
well, on performance, I'll actually leave everyone to speak for themselves, but just to make a general comment that over the last decade, listed private equity has outperformed global public markets by more than a third. At the same time, public markets are providing less and less investor choice and diversification. The number of companies listed on public markets has roughly halved since a peak in the late 90s. Today, private capital is funding companies that have never seen a stock exchange and in many cases never will. Where companies are coming to public markets, most of their growth is often happening before they get there. There are now entire specialist areas and subsectors, technology enablement, healthcare, not to mention companies at the forefront in sustainable investing and implementing ESG strategies that are simply not widely available on many public markets. In fact, many national stock markets now have sector SKUs that no longer provide diversification. In summary then, listed private capital offers performance, exciting investment strategies, access to companies and assets, and often to whole sectors that are simply not available on public markets. Investors get diversification, and particularly in the case of companies, those in relatively high phase of growth. Now to talk about what this means in practice, we have three of the leaders in the sector. First up is MB Private Equity Partners, Paul Daggett. Paul. Thank you, Deborah. So I am Paul Daggett, uh, a managing director with Newberger Bowman. I've been with the firm for 18 years, and one of my responsibilities is uh, to help manage MBPE. So I'll just introduce Newberger Bowman. Newberger is a privately owned investment manager and within the private equity sector, uh, we manage $95 billion of commitments. We have 150 investment professionals who work on the types of investments that, that go into MBPE, located in 10 offices globally. And importantly, in the bottom left of the slide, you can see we have almost 600 private equity manager relationships across the assets that we manage. If you then refer to the, the pie chart in the bottom right, you can see in total the 95 billion we manage in various different strategies. I'll just explain two of those. First of all, primaries are fund investments. These do not go into NBPE, so we don't make commitments from it. But within our overall business, this just shows you we have a lot of capital that we do invest into primary funds. For NBPE, the important sector is co-investments, where you can see we have $26 billion of commitments under management. Uh, I'll explain more about co-investments, but you can see it's a significant part of what we do, and that helps to generate very strong deal flow. You can see at the top of the slide, last year we looked at almost 400 opportunities from over 200 different managers within co-investments, which I'll explain in just a second. I'll explain co-investments and come back. But what a co-investment is, is it's a direct investment into a private equity-owned company alongside a lead private equity manager. And so what this is, is a fund sometimes needs additional equity to make an investment in order to complete it. For example, if a $1 billion fund wanted to invest $200 million of equity into a single business, that would be 20% of their fund. And they would be unlikely to want to concentrate the portfolio that much. And so in that case, they would look for a partner. They could either go to one of their peers and share control of that company or they can go to their limited partners uh, and look for uh, someone to give them equity to go into the company alongside them, uh, which helps to, um, it gives the advantage 
of equity directly for the limited partner and the advantage for the general partner that they don't need to share control with another investor. And so across co-investments, uh, you can diversify a portfolio. If you have a large number of relationships, you can build a well-diversified co-investment portfolio. And if we now go back to slide eight, uh, I'll just explain the advantages of this. This is in the bottom left of the slide. It allows diversification across different sectors, different private equity managers, different company sizes. So it allows uh, someone to construct a well-diversified portfolio. In MBPE's case, we have 95 investments alongside 56 different private equity managers currently in the portfolio. It allows an extra layer of due diligence. And so we can look at each company. I mentioned we looked at almost 400 last year. We can decide which are the best opportunities for MBPE and actually control the investment decision. We're not relying on unfunded commitments and blind pool investments into funds. We're making each decision affirmatively. It also allows us to be dynamic in the same way that uh, in a time where we want to be a bit more cautious, we can stop investing. When we want to invest because we think it's an interesting time in the market or we're seeing particularly good deal flow, we can make more investments. So we can be dynamic with our investment pace because we control the investment decision. In terms of ESG, uh, that is part of our due diligence. And so we look at both the manager's ESG capabilities as well as the underlying company that we're investing in, uh, in terms of ESG uh, characteristics, that's part of our due diligence. And then finally, uh, in the vast majority of cases, a co-investment has the advantage that there is a single layer of fees. And so in 97% of MBPE's direct equity investments, we don't pay a management fee or a carried interest to that underlying uh, owner, the, the lead GP. Uh, instead, we invest directly in that equity with that favored economic structure. And so that means that the overall, the, the vehicle uh, has a very fee efficient approach to the asset class, we believe. So in terms of diversification, uh, first of all, the statistics on the right, as I mentioned, we have 95 direct investments alongside 56 different managers. We're also very well diversified by vintage year. The average holding uh, period of the direct equity investments in the portfolio is now 3.7 years. But that is vintage years, 2020, 19, 18, 17, et cetera, um, meaning there's a very good level of diversification by vintage year within the portfolio. And on the pie chart on the left of the, of the slide, um, you can see that the biggest position in the portfolio is a company called Constellation. That's 5% of the portfolio. The top 20 investments make up about 51% of the portfolio, and there's 95 in total. So we look to be diversified. Um, but we're also looking for investments that are big enough that a single investment, if it is successful, can drive success in the portfolio. So we typically size investments at one and a half to two percent of the portfolio, and those that have done particularly well end up being in that top ten part of the portfolio that you see uh, towards the top of the slide. So diversification is very important to us. And continuing that theme on the next slide, you can see that. We are weighted to North America, but we also have meaningful exposure to Europe and some exposure to Asia and rest of the world. And then in terms of industry, again, well-diversified tech, media, and telecom is the biggest sector uh, with about 21% of the portfolio, but industrials and industrial technology, consumer and e-commerce uh, are also significant exposures within the portfolio. And one thing I should mention that it, that it mentions at the top of the slide is that we are 
focused on buyout investments. And so we're investing in mature, generally cash flow positive businesses, and we are not weighted uh, towards um, sort of aggressive uh, early stage growth companies. Uh, we're looking to invest in mature um, buyout owned companies within the portfolio. In terms of themes, this is really important. So I talked about sector and diversification, but over the last um, five years or so, we've really positioned the portfolio around two core themes. One is to look for businesses or industries where we think there's a low expected level of cyclicality. And then the other end of the spectrum is to look for businesses where we believe there's long-term secular growth trends. Technology is a big part of that particular theme in terms of both direct technology investments, but also tech-enabled investments. But as I mentioned, in a more mature format, such as a software business that's cash flow positive. Most of the largest investments in the portfolio are built around one of these themes. As I mentioned, we really began to do that uh, prior to COVID um, with the thought that we were in a very long expansion and that ultimately uh, investments we were making in 2018 and 2019 would need to live through a downturn uh, before they could ultimately be exited. And so with that in mind, um, we positioned around these core themes that served us very well through COVID. Um, and again, in today's uncertain environment, uh, we believe that that leads to um, good portfolio positioning um, for uh, an economic environment where we expect to see um, less growth. And, and obviously, everyone's aware of the environment we're operating in. Moving on to the next slide in terms of returns, um, we present returns both year to date, then one, three and five. Uh, obviously, over the long term, you can see the results have been very good um, in terms of NAV total return, 75% NAV total return over three years, 114% over five years. Uh, we report our NAV in US dollars since the majority of our assets are US dollar denominated. Um, but in terms of the sterling share price return, you can see again over one, three and five years, that has been very good. Uh, of course, on the year-to-date side of the, the chart on the left, um, NAV is down 5% year-to-date. Most of that really is due to the performance of public investments in the portfolio. And we don't invest in public companies, but upon an IPO, uh, obviously there is a public holding, which generally is sold down over time. And thus far this year, um, that has been um, impacted by uh, what's gone on in the public markets. But the private investments in the portfolio through the first quarter, we're up 2%, just for reference. Um, but of course, the, the bigger number there you see is the share price obviously has declined so far this year, and so has um, the listed private fund sector, private equity uh, fund sector in the, in the London market, which meant that the discount has widened. But we can talk um, more about what we think is a resilient portfolio um, as, as I sum up. So we pay a dividend, which we pay twice a year in February and August. You can see the yield on the share price on the right-hand side of the slide is currently 5.2%. We actually set the dividend to be 3% of NAV, um, which we set on a, on a biannual basis. And that is covered uh, so far this year um, by 2.7 times by realizations we've had in the portfolio. So. Um, so far this year, we've had $120 million of announced realizations within the portfolio, and those ultimately will be cash events um, that return cash back, and that helps to cover the dividend, as you can see here. And so in summary, um, 
really, I think, first of all, the strategy we believe is differentiated, and that's the co-investment strategy. It allows us to be selective, investing alongside leading private equity managers in their core areas of expertise. And so we're biased towards managers who have managed investments in a particular sector. So that allows us to be very selective. It allows us to be dynamic with our investment pacing, um, to invest more aggressively when we choose to, but also uh, in more difficult times to preserve capital. Um, and it also allows us to be, we think, very fee efficient uh, with our investment approach. Uh, the performance I just mentioned over the long term has been uh, very good over the short term, um, has still held up quite well compared to uh, the US public markets. And again, we believe at the bottom that the portfolio is well diversified, is built around key investment themes. And so far, looking at the portfolio, we, we believe it's held up very well, even in a, a very difficult economic environment. Um, one thing I didn't mention is that we are 107% invested. And so MBPE is in the position that we can make investments when we wish to, um, because we have $368 million of available liquidity. That's $68 million in cash at the end of May, uh, plus a $300 million credit facility, which is currently undrawn. Um, so we have the ability to invest, but because we're 107% invested, uh, we don't have the need to invest. We have a more than fully invested portfolio. And so we think that puts us in an attractive position. Um, and overall, uh, I think, uh, you know, because of the approach we have to investment, because of the positioning around the key themes, um, we feel good about where we are today, uh, obviously approaching the market cautiously, uh, still looking at new deals, looking at new investments. Um, but so far this year, we've only closed one new investment. Um, but that's not because we haven't seen a lot of very interesting deal flow. Um, so we do expect to be continuing to invest this year. Um, but we will choose our, our spots very carefully and our timing very carefully. And that is a, a quick summary of MBPE. Uh, we're going to answer questions at the end of this presentation. And so with that, I will now hand over uh, to Hamish. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. So uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for taking time to uh, listen into this um, presentation. I'm the manager of CT Private Equity Trust. Um, just to explain, some of you may be wondering what is CT Private Equity Trust. Well, we renamed the company on Friday. So this is the first time that uh, I have actually given a presentation under this particular name. This is the fourth name uh, of the, the company. It started off as Martin Curry uh, Capital Return Trust. Then it became F&C Private Equity Trust. Then it became BMO private equity trust. And when BMO sold us to Columbia Threadneedle uh, last November, uh, we uh, changed owner again, and we've now changed brand uh, to uh, CT private uh, equity trusts. So this is a private equity investment trust. It's uh, what we describe as a value-added uh, fund of funds, a mixed portfolio of funds and co-investments in roughly equal proportions. The company has been going since 1999, 23 years. I've been managing it all the way through. It invests internationally, indeed globally, but most of the investments are in Europe with just about half in the UK and most of the balance in continental Europe. We focus on um, investing in mid-market buyouts either through funds or co-investments, 
and we have a preference for investing with so-called emerging managers. So these are up and coming, uh, lesser known groups, but ones where we think there's a lot of um, motivation and um, potential for them to do well. Um, up to half the portfolio can be invested in co-investments. Uh, Paul has done a very good explanation of what co-investments are, so I'm not going to uh, repeat that. But our um, proportion of co-investments at the moment is just over half, 46.7% uh, at the end of the last quarter. Another feature that's worth uh, stressing is that uh, we do pay a good dividend. It's uh, 4% of NAV. And indeed, this uh, company was the first to take advantage of the change in the Companies Act in 2010, which allowed investment companies, including investment trusts, to pay out um, realized capital profits as, as dividend. And so we set that level at 4%. It will be it's paid out quarterly, so 1% of the average of the previous four quarters NEV is paid out as a dividend, and we will increase that. We will only increase that dividend. We will not take it down if the calculation leads to a lower number. So it's a very predictable uh, source of income, and shareholders seem to appreciate that. The portfolio is extremely well diversified. And therefore, it is a good platform against which to gear. And so gearing is part of our strategy here. We have a 25 million euro term loan and we have 95 million pounds worth of multi-currency revolving credit facility. Almost all of that is available at the moment. The returns that we expect to make through investing in private equity are far in excess of the cost of borrowing. So that will tend to enhance returns nicely for uh, shareholders. It is uh, very well diversified. Its portfolio, private equity is naturally a risky asset class. And in my view, there is only one way of reducing that naturally high risk down to moderate levels, and that is by constructing a well diversified portfolio, which is what we have. A couple of quick highlights from last year, probably worth stressing it because it was an exceptionally strong year. Our NAV total return was 35.8%. Share price went up by two thirds. And we had a lot of strong exits that were driving returns. We had a record breaking year in terms of exits. I think in general, I would say that private equity had a good pandemic, uh, came through it well. And the, the model of being able to be involved in the underlying companies and giving them aid and pooling resources, I think, uh, very much came into its own during the pandemic. And so uh, so we've done well during that period. So if we turn on to the next slide, this just gives an update on the first quarter. I'm not going to go through all of this in detail. The first quarter was up slightly 0.4%. This tends to be a very quiet quarter. It comes very close on the heels of the full year numbers. So you tend not to have a lot of new information at that time. One thing that did happen in the first uh, quarter, in fact, we got the money just after uh, the end of the first quarter was we had our largest co-investment stacks was exited at 6.2 times money and an 87% IRR. Now, stacks was uh, one of the conspicuous beneficiaries of um, the pandemic. It is a company that makes, amongst other things, rubber gloves and masks. So you can imagine how that had traded through uh, the pandemic. So we've, we've exited it. Um, very successfully. It was a Silver Fleet-led deal. This just shows the long-term progression of the company. You can see 
that it basically goes up um, almost every year. There was a slight dip during the global financial crisis from which it recovered. And we've been paying a sort of a steady good dividend all the way through. Just another way of looking at the long-term performance. So we've been talking about the strengths of private equity. Now this does show it over the 23-year period. The dark blue line is the NAV total return and the light blue line is the share price total return. The dotted line is the, the stock market. And you can see that investing in our shares over the long term has delivered returns that are well, well in excess of anything you could achieve in the stock market. To put it in context, the annualized return over that 23-year period is approximately twice what you would have achieved through the, the stock market. And the capital gains are between three and four times uh, what you could have achieved in the stock market. So this underlines the case, not just for our company, but for the sector generally. It's just another way of looking at performance. This is one of the standard slides that we're supposed to show. It shows you that it obviously doesn't go up strongly every single year, but the cumulative effect is very good. And if we move on to the next slide, I'm going to give you a few examples of um, the companies that we've invested in recently. The portfolio is very well diversified, so we're not trying to play any one individual sector. We're trying to look for companies that are well-priced, the deals that are well-led, uh, that have got strong growth characteristics. And we obviously, in co-investments, get a, a chance to choose the companies directly. We have access to all the due diligence that the lead manager has done. We have access to management. And basically, we are making a fully informed decision and we choose to invest in these companies. So the first one here is called OneMed. So this is a contract research organization based in Switzerland that provides advice mainly to medical device companies and pharmaceutical companies on their clinical trials, the regulatory strategy and the management of those trials. This is led by Apposite Capital, who are healthcare specialists and this market itself is growing at really quite a decent rate. I mean, the market is going, growing at about 16% per annum, and this company is gaining share into that market. So we're optimistic that we could make you know, three times our money or more in this deal uh, over the next few years. This is a completely different company. Again, it's Aurora, which is a payments company based in Texas. This was brought to us by Corsair Capital, who specialize in financial services businesses particularly attractive business here because of its positioning in the U.S. market. It basically has a customer base that are small, um, you know, hotels and restaurants, um, and that's its kind of niche. And uh, the chief executive of the company has already essentially built up a very similar company and sold it successfully. So, again, we're aiming for about three times our money uh, over the next four years or so completely different again. This is a, a company called uh, Bomaki. This is a chain of so-called sushi samba restaurants in northern Italy. Interesting mixture. It's um, uh, Japanese-inspired, Japanese and Brazilian-inspired cuisine. There's a significant Japanese minority in Brazil, and they have a particular type of food. And this is a variation on that, which is proving very popular. This is a reasonably straightforward strategy, which is to increase the chain of restaurants from nine to 24 over the next uh, few years. The lead here 
is an Italian firm called Ogens, and we have backed them before in, in other investments. So we've got a good um, regard for their ability. And we, we expect to make a, an excellent return here as well. You can see there's a wide range of businesses here. This is a perfect image, which is a deal led by Chilton Capital. It's an IT company. It provides um, IT support. It provides transition to the cloud and cybersecurity to essentially small and medium-sized enterprises across England. So quite different from all the ones I've talked to you before about. But again, uh, we think there is a, a good growth story here. This market's growing and they're growing into a reasonably fragmented market. And hence, we think there's an excellent prospect of a you know really good return here as well. So, I mean, these are just a few of the recent uh, co-investments. And you can see that um, they are very different to each other, but there are some common features, a low in price, a, a good lead on the deal, um, good growth prospects, generally secular um, in, in the underlying companies. And as I said, we've had a chance to see all the information and meet the management in the same way that the, the lead manager does. So if you, this is just a, a list of realizations we've had in the year to date. And the reason for putting this in is just to show you that although we had a fantastic experience of exits last year, it has continued into the current year. And you can see from a different range of geographies, different types of companies, different lead managers, um, we're still seeing some really good um, exits in terms of money multiple and IRR. So just for point of reference, if, if the IRR is above you know 25% or so, the money multiple is two and a half times or better, that's a pretty good outcome. And um, all these highlighted ones during um, the start of this year have been above that. So, you know, things are, are still uh, appearing quite resilient. These are the largest holdings. I'm not going to talk through each of them. I don't have time for that in this presentation. But you can see, again, Stacks obviously has now been sold. This was this is accurate as of the end of March. But all the others are still in the portfolio. Again, uh, a good spread of different types of company. The largest holdings would be about 3%, and that's when they've been in the portfolio for a while and have built up some value. Our um, uh, starting point for co-investments is quite a bit below that, but it is a large enough so that if the deal goes well, it will move the needle positively. But if it goes badly wrong, it's not going to completely um, upset the apple cart. Um, so that is one of the benefits of having uh, a well-diversified portfolio of co-investments. Diversification uh, is a theme that has cropped up already quite a bit this afternoon, but it's absolutely critical. Uh, by geography, about half our portfolio is in the UK. Most of the rest is in continental Europe, although we do have about 13% in the US. By vintage year, it is well-diversified. About half the portfolio is more than four years old and around two-thirds more than three years old. And the relevance of this statistic is that this is a kind of proxy for the mature element of the portfolio that will drive realization. So most of these investments are made with about a four-year hold in mind. So if everything is going according to plan, after about three years, they will be well into their plan for, for exit. And so you can see from this that there is a good stock of maturing investment likely to come through, which will mean that we will always have uh, a reasonable proportion uh, being realized. 
The portfolio is not particularly expensive in terms of its valuation, about 12.2 times on enterprise value to EBITDA or enterprise value to cash flow multiple, another way of expressing it. The valuations have gone up um, in recent years, but this is still quite low compared to our peers, which is a function of our mid-market exposure. And the companies themselves, although they are geared, they are management buyouts, they're not very highly geared. Average debt to EBITDA is only about 2.9 times. This just shows the sectoral diversification. Two points to make here. We have quite a lot in technology, hardware and equipment and software and services. So IT generally, that's about um, 18%. And we've got about 25% in healthcare as broadly defined. Now, this is no surprise. These are sectors where there is long-term secular growth and where private equity, uh, the private equity sector in general is, is very interested. And these are sectors that have done well through the pandemic and we expect will continue to do well over the long term. And beyond that, we have quite a wide range of other um, exposures. We don't have much in in uh, things like financial services. Uh, we don't have anything in real estate or in extractive industries or utilities, things like that tend not to feature in um, the private equity universe. So just to wrap up, I think we have a resilient uh, company here. The portfolio proved to be very resilient throughout the pandemic and its early days, but 2022 has uh, started well. The private equity uh, discipline, if you like, the ability to become involved with companies to support them through difficult times has very much been vindicated in the last couple of years. And this is what I think is driving increased demand for private equity. I think people have realized that private equity can make good returns under many different uh, conditions. And, uh, you know, there's a long-term growing appetite to increase exposure to private equity. And investing in this investment trust is one way of uh, smaller investors achieving that. We've got plenty of firepower for new investments. Obviously, the proceeds of realizations, but also our largely unused revolving credit facility. And we're seeing uh, good value still in the, the lower mid-market. We see good deal flow. We're being highly selective, building up the co-investment element of the portfolio and also adding to secondaries. Um, good exits, as I've just mentioned, have continued well into the first quarter of 2022. There are obviously lots of um, hazards on the horizon with the uh, the situation in Ukraine and with inflation building and a number of other challenges coming through. But the fact that private equity proved resilient through COVID, it also proved resilient through the global financial crisis, um, you know, 15 years ago, and also through the dot-com boom and bust, uh, gives me a lot of confidence that it will do well uh, into the well into the future. And I'm also confident that appetite for private equity investment in general uh, will be maintained. And I think that puts us in a good position uh, going forward. So thanks very much for listening to me. I would now like to hand over uh, to Christoph. Thank you, Hamish. I'm Christoph van der Capelle, the CFO of GIMF. Uh, we are uh, a private equity company uh, listed in Brussels, uh, and I will in the coming 15 minutes, uh, introduce you to our company and what we do uh, and 
the returns we have realized. So today, maybe the big difference with the presentations you've heard from the two other uh, speakers today is that we are a direct investor in portfolio companies. So as was explained already by Paul and by Hamish, uh, sometimes people uh, that, are, that do invest in funds do also invest directly into companies. We only directly invest into companies. Today, we do that uh, with a portfolio of about 1.5 billion euros. We are invested in 59 portfolio companies. And uh, the big differentiation that we have as a private equity investor directly investing in companies is that we are focusing on industry specialization with our teams. Uh, we are organized according to what we call five investment platforms. You see them here, uh, consumer, healthcare, life sciences, smart industries, and sustainable cities. I will come back to that a bit later on in the presentation. And we do that with teams uh, presence, present in, in four countries. Uh, we are originated from Belgium, but we are also active with uh, own offices in the Netherlands, in Germany, and in France. And that's, let's say, the core regional market where we look to companies that have uh, growth potential above market. All our portfolio companies today in, in, in general realize a joint turnover of more than 3 billion euros and employ uh, 19,000 professionals. We have a quite broad range in terms of investment mandate. Uh, we look at uh, typically the European mid-market, which results in investment tickets of 5 to 75 million euros. I will also show the breakdown of our portfolio a bit later on. And over our more than 40 years existence, uh, because we do exist as of 1980, uh, we have generated a long-term net return for our shareholders on an annual basis of 11.5%. So that's the general introduction. We are, as I said, investing ourselves with money from our own balance sheet directly into portfolio companies. So we are very flexible in that respect. We have our own balance sheet uh, to invest in companies. So we can be... Uh, very flexible in terms of investment scope, investment duration uh, throughout the full cycle. Uh, we can sometimes stay longer in portfolio companies because we don't feel any pressure of, of fund uh, cycles. We, we have our own balance sheet as a kind of an evergreen approach. So that makes us uh, sometimes more flexible than other private equity uh, investors. And also in terms of products and solutions, we offer uh, the full uh, let's say, scope of, of investments going from venture capital in the life sciences over growth capital uh, up to, to buyouts. Uh, our reach is by definition international. Uh, what we sometimes can do is, given the fact that we have four offices in, in four markets, that we can help companies in growing their international scope, internationalizing their sales efforts, etc. And we do that also backed by a large uh, network of, of industry experts. We are experienced uh, more than 40 years old, so one of the oldest uh, private equity investment companies active in Europe today. And on, on the right-hand side, you see, let's say, a lot of icons, a lot of company names. Uh, not all of them will be familiar to you, but I just want to highlight with, with showing that that we also have, and that's indeed the theme of this afternoon, a very diversified portfolio. I think being diversified in today's markets uh, is, is very, very useful and indeed creates a kind of a natural hedge against uh, strong fluctuations. 
these are the five platforms. Uh, we have taken that decision about 10 years ago, where we saw that the private equity market more and more became a kind of a commoditized market, uh, where, where the financial structuring, providing the right financial solutions, was not the differentiating element anymore. And so we have changed our strategy and we have built our teams around five industries or, or five, let's say, sector clusters. Consumer, I think the name of all these clusters speak for themselves. Consumer, there we look into opportunities in the retail business, in direct consumer business. Healthcare is mainly investing in, in healthcare services companies. And quite recently, we have split out the life sciences platform out of the healthcare platform because in the past it was combined. The reason that we did this and that we started life sciences as a new platform is that the life sciences activity in our portfolio is the only activity where we are active in in venture capital, so where we invest in an earlier phase of development uh, of the company versus our other platforms. And that asks for a specific approach, a specific uh, market approach, a specific team, etc. And therefore, uh, we decided to, to isolate life sciences from the, from the healthcare platform. Life sciences today, which is the only venture capital activity we are active in today, represents about 10% of our uh, total uh, net asset value. The fourth platform is smart industries. We more and more believe in an industrial future for the European continent. You see that automation brings back production back to Europe. And so we are there invest typically in companies that are smart manufacturers or that do have a technological advantage versus their sector peers. And then finally, sustainable cities. Uh, with that platform, we do invest in, in companies that are engaged in uh, making our world better, more sustainable, uh, be it through energy solutions, be it through logistic solutions, uh, sometimes also professional services companies, etc., are included there. The most important element to note is that the organization that we have today at HIMF, although we are present in four countries, is not based on geographic teams, but is based on teams in these five platforms. So this is the driver of our organization. This is also the driver of our investment policy, our investment approach, our selection, and also in building the value in our portfolio companies. Because we have teams that are specialized, they can bring on another story towards entrepreneurs than only bringing the money. We have a conversation with the managers about the growth potential of their companies doing buy and build, uh, making them stronger in their sector, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a point where we are maybe different versus a lot of other private equity investors. This is then the breakdown uh, of our current portfolio. And you see that both from a platform view, but also from a regional point of view, uh, we are very diversified. Uh, and that also holds uh, for, for vintages, uh, which is not shown here, but also there. That is a very nice diversification. We invest on average about 200 to 220 million a year, which brings us to a portfolio today of 1.5 billion, which shows that also in terms of vintages, we are diversified, but also here with regards to platforms and also with regards to regions, uh, it, it's a diversified portfolio. Maybe some words on our performance of last year. So we have an accounting year that closes at the end of March. So these are figures that we have published in May on the fiscal year 2021-2022, going up to the 31st of March. 
Uh, as already also mentioned by Hamish, uh, last year was a very good year for private equity, and that was also shown in the performance of our portfolio. We saw very strong growth, both top line as well as in terms of profitability. And that growth that we saw in our portfolio was the key driver of our portfolio return next to some of the successful exits that we have realized. Total portfolio return last year was 20.4% or 250 million euros. The strong performance of our portfolio as also evidenced then by a growing valuation together with a sustained investment rhythm brings us to the record level of our portfolio of 1.5 billion euros. We continue to invest also today, even though markets and the economy are rather, let's say, are a bit more unstable as they were uh, last year. We still think that there are good investment opportunities. We had a very intensive quarter. The first quarter of our fiscal year was very intensive. We had five new investments uh, realized in, in the last uh, quarter. But also more and more, we do what we call buy and build where uh, portfolio companies uh, themselves invest uh, in other uh, companies within their sector to make them stronger, to strengthen their strategic positioning. So that's also an increasing activity uh, done within our uh, portfolio. Our financial position is still very solid. We have sufficient liquidity to support our growth. We have started the new year with about uh, 380 million uh, euros of cash uh, still available part of it, which is funded by uh, some long-term bonds that we have issued over the last couple of years. So our equity is fully invested, but we still have a very strong liquidity to support our growth and our portfolio companies. And we are paying a dividend as well. Uh, we are paying a dividend, which brings us up a yield, to a yield of about 5% on an annual basis. And we have increased our dividend last year uh, from 2.5 to 2.6 euros per share. Uh, versus a stock price today, which is just uh, north of 50 euros per share. So about 5% uh, dividend yield. This is our portfolio return over a five years period. Uh, we have an in internal target of at least a 15% uh, portfolio return throughout the full investment cycle. We have realized that, uh, of course, there was one outlier on the negative side, knowing that we have to close our financial year in March. We also closed it in March 2020 when uh, stock markets collapsed uh, because of the COVID crisis with about 30%. Given the fact that we are also valuing our portfolio on a fair value basis, there was an impact in terms of valuation, but we quite quickly recovered from that last year. And this year, the performance of our portfolio was so strong that we could for a second time realize a, a portfolio return in excess of 20%. Its portfolio return is generated by performance of companies in our portfolio, but also by exits, yeah, realizations of our portfolio. In total, the contribution of exits for last year was 147 million euros. And the exits that we had realized was on average on 3.2 times investment costs or an IRR of 22%. Uh, I've talked already about the growth of our portfolio companies. And here you see how good the year 2021 was. On the left-hand side, you see sales performance aggregated per platform. On the right-hand side, you see EBITDA performance aggregated per platform. In general, we had a 24% top-line growth in our portfolio and not less than a 38% EBITDA growth in our portfolio. About 60% of that growth was organic. So it's not all purchased growth. No, it's also organic growth. More than half comes from 
the inherent growth of our portfolio companies. And you see that in all platforms, 2021 shows an acceleration in growth, certainly in terms of profitability growth. There is maybe one a bit of an outlier where you see that the consumer platform has maybe a bit more challenge in terms of taking on further growth post-COVID because there, yeah, the COVID impact lasted longer for the consumer market than for some other markets. For instance, B2B recovered more, more quickly. And also there now we see today with inflation uh, peaking uh, that consumer confidence is maybe uh, a bit challenging today. But nevertheless, they, are, they were at 2021 above the 2020 levels again. So this is uh, the, the main theme of our investment uh, selection is, is growing companies, companies that have the potential to outgrow their peers. And we also see that in our realizations, uh, we have done an analysis uh, on the exits that we have done over the last eight years. So this is aggregated figures for all exits realized over the last eight years. In all of these companies, we had invested 555 million euros and we generated proceeds of 1.7 billion euros. So in an aggregate way, there was a 3x realized gain and the, and the source of, of that realized gain came from more than 80% from the growth of our portfolio companies. So we are not an investor that is playing the leveraging game. And so we use some leverage, but for very modest levels. The current debt over EBDA ratio today is 2.2 times in our portfolio. And growth should be and will be also for the future be the main driver of our return, not only on our valuation return, but also on a realized return when exiting our portfolio companies. Multiple expansion also has some contribution, but there we have analyzed that the multiple expansion much more came from a better strategic positioning of the company when selling versus when entering and not uh, and that it didn't come from uh, the, the capital markets uh, that were uh, getting higher. So it's really also more, let's say, the effort of the company to make itself more interesting for potential buyers. So it's not only investing in growing companies, it's also growing ourselves. And you see it here, the growth of our portfolio was rather strong over the last couple of years, and it even accelerated in the last two years, almost a 50% growth uh, over, over the last two years. And it's a diversified portfolio, and it's also a rather young portfolio. 3.6 years is the average duration of the money invested today in our portfolio. If you know that our average holding period is six, seven years, there is still some, some hidden potential and some further value creation potential present in the today's 1.5 billion euros uh, portfolio. Maybe one point that I didn't mention yet up to now is the fact that we do invest directly into portfolio companies means that there is no fee leakage whatsoever in our business. So we invest in our, with our own money in portfolio companies we divest and all the proceeds get back to our balance sheet again. So no fee leakage whatsoever. Uh, of course, we do have some expenses uh, for the teams working on our portfolio, but next to that, no external costs uh, related with our business. So this is then our performance. We are a dividend payer, as I said. So, and it also shows here, uh, if you see the bottom line is our share price performance, but then if you add dividends and then you even add dividends reinvested, you see that the, the shareholder return 
is in fact over the last 10 years about 10% on an annual basis uh, net for our shareholders. We are a dividend payer and that we, we will continue to do so. We have in fact a, a, the ambition to reinvest about half of our net return in the growth of our business and to share about half of our net return with our shareholders on a cash basis uh, through the dividend. Then maybe a, a, a word uh, to conclude on ESG, uh, because it, it increasingly becomes an integral part of our strategy, of our investment strategy, of our investment selection, of course, at first, but also doing the work with our portfolio companies in terms of increasing their ESG survey on ESG with all our portfolio companies the last year. Uh, here you see some results of that survey. I won't go into much detail. There's also a very large chapter on ESG in our annual report. The important element is that we want to future-proof our portfolio companies on ESG because we are increasingly aware of the fact that if that wouldn't be the case, it also would, will create a drag on, on, on the financial return. Uh, so we see it as, a, as one of our core tasks to also uh, move up and improve the ESG performance of our portfolio companies. So this, this is uh, what is shown on this slide. And then on the next slide, you see also that Hinvin itself as an investor wants, wants to improve its ESG performance. Uh, we have uh, formulated the climate plan ourselves. We are giving attention a lot to DEI uh, in everything that we do and also our strong ESG let's say score was underpinned by a sustainalytics rating last year where we show that we are in the top 10 percentage of our industry with our ESG uh, scoring. So that's about it from my side. Maybe to conclude, uh, as I said, we are a direct investor in about 60 growing portfolio companies. The strength of our portfolio was once again evidenced last year with both strong top line and profitability growth. And we also show that we can realize uh, the value creation within our portfolio through uh, exits, where we see that over the last eight years, we have done a, a 3x versus the investment cost uh, and have generated uh, double digit uh, returns, both at portfolio level as well as on the net level for our shareholders. And we share about half of that return through a dividend, a consistent dividend with our shareholders. So I would like to conclude maybe on that note and uh, give now the floor to Deborah to, to uh, manage the questions and ask. Christoph, thank you very much indeed. And we've got a question for Paul. Can you expand a bit on co-investment? How do you think this supports performance in the current markets? Yeah, th thank you for the question and, and, and happy to expand on that. I mean, really, I think that the key is um, the, the deal flow that, that we see. So. Um, we're a global manager. We're looking at co-investments from around the world, from a lot of different managers. And actually, we're seeing uh, so far this year, deal flow has been similar to what it was through the same period last year. So we're continuing to see good investments coming through. Um, and, and so that allows us to pick our spots very carefully. And uh, also, of course, to choose who to invest alongside. And in terms of the existing portfolio, that's the key. Um, it really comes down to private equity being an active uh, asset class where you have uh, an owner who has the ability uh, to really implement operational changes. And part of our co-investment underwriting is making sure uh, we're really thinking hard about 
is this the right owner for the right assets? And if we can invest alongside high quality private equity firms in their core areas of expertise, and in particular in areas that they've been successful in the past and know very well, um, then it gives us confidence that in good times and in bad, um, these owners will be able to add value to the companies. Uh, of course, in bad times, that, that may involve uh, just being careful about how you operate a company. In better times, it might involve investing more aggressively into a business. Um, but ultimately, private equity doesn't manage two quarterly earnings. It manages for the long term. And if you invest alongside the right managers in the right assets, um, then that can really position you very well. So I think both in terms of new investments, there's, there's an advantage to co-investment because of the huge amount of deal flow you can look at and how selective you can be. And then with existing investments, I think the advantage is um, you know, picking the right managers and, and having them uh, operate in different sectors, different geographies, different company sizes across our portfolio. Thank you very much. And I've now got a question for each of you, which is what have the IRRs been since inception for each fund and what fees do each fund charge? So I'll go first if you like. Um, on our fund for 23 years, um, it is about 11, 11.5%, something like that, per annum. Uh, and that compares with the stock market over the same period of 5.5%. So it's about double what you would have achieved in the stock market. In terms of fees on our, um, our company, the basic management fee is 0.9% of the net assets. There's also a performance fee on top of that, which uh, depends upon the three-year IRR exceeding 8% per annum. And if it exceeds 8% per annum, there's a performance fee, which is equivalent to 7.5% of the annualized gains over that three-year period, subject to a cap on total fee at 2%. So if, for example, the performance fee becomes more than 1.1%, it's capped so that the overall fee is not more than 2 Great. Thank you very much. And Christoph, do you want to answer the same question? Yeah. Um, as, as I mentioned in my presentation, so the net return for, uh, for our shareholders over our total existence is, is 11.5%. Uh, so, and, and as I said, we are a direct investor, so we don't have any fee leakage uh, in our business. So we are not paying any, uh, let's say, other managers uh, that, that would manage our, our investments into private equity. Uh, we do that ourselves. Uh, so what I could mention maybe uh, is that today we have a cost base in general of about 30 to 35 million euros. Uh, if you set that up versus the value of our portfolio, but even a higher amount versus the assets under management, you come at a percentage level which is below 2%, which is about today about 1.7, 1.8%, which is comparable to the fee structure uh, if you are an LP versus a GP, but it's just do based on, on our own balance sheet and our own costs uh, that we have with our own team. Thank you very much. And Paul? Yeah, so we, um, since inception, I don't have an updated number um, available. Um, obviously, we can publish that at a later date. Over, over 10 years, 
Uh, this is a, a, as of the end of April, our gross portfolio IRR. So that's before um, management fees um, and, and carry was about 15%. Um, as of the end of May, um, NAV total return was 260%. Share price total return was 393%. Um, obviously, those aren't IRRs. Um, uh, so, so those are sort of the long-term returns that we have um, recently issued. Uh, in terms of the fee structure, we have a management fee charged on uh, private equity fair value of 1.5% per annum. And then there's a performance fee of 7.5% per annum above a 7.5% preferred return. So, so that's, that's um, the, the fee structure. And as I mentioned, obviously, um, 97% of the direct equity investments, which is 91% of our portfolio, uh, there isn't a management fee or a carry paid at the underlying level. Thank you. Did you give an IRR? I only gave a gross IRR. Um, we don't typically report IRRs. We report, we report total return numbers. Um, so the gross IRR was 15% over 10 years to the end of April. Okay, thank you very much. And again, a question for all three of you. What's your economic outlook? How deep a recession, if any? And what will be the effect on your portfolio from that and from inflation? If you want to start off, Hamish. Okay, that's an easy question, isn't it? You know, I mean, I know we're paid to predict the future, but that's quite a tricky one. I mean, obviously, we're going into a challenging economic situation. Uh, whether or not we actually have a, a, a recession technically um, is kind of probably academic. I mean, we are going to experience some kind of uh, recession, and it's going to be different from the ones that we've had recently because there'll be, um, you know, we've got inflation and there'll be interest rates rising. Um, I think uh, the biggest effect it will have on the portfolio is that it will affect confidence both at the level of the customers of our companies but also uh, confidence um, at the investor level you know the people that are doing deals and i think first of all although things are proving to be quite resilient so far this year i think we'll see the volume of deals uh, down um, in both directions new deals as well as um, realizations now one probably would have expected that anyway because we had a very active period last year. Uh, so I think we could be coming back to more normal levels. You know, 2019 levels are probably a bit below that. Um, and that that would tend to mean that returns are not going to be as good this year as they have been in the last couple of years. Will it be negative? Difficult to tell at this stage. It's not impossible that they could be pretty flat or pretty modest, um, but there will still be new deals done. There still will be companies sold at excellent prices, and we're seeing that you know, still on a daily basis. But I think um, we will probably have a quieter period uh, for this year and possibly into next year. I think in terms of the underlying companies, people always ask, you know, you're backing management buyouts. Isn't the big increase in interest rates going to be a disaster for them? Well, not necessarily, because most of the people who structure these deals are well aware that we have had abnormally low interest rates for a long time, and they would have been expecting some kind of normalization of the interest rate situation for a while, and they will certainly have stress-tested 
every one of their deals uh, for that. So I'm not expecting there to be big, you know, defaults at the level of the um, uh, underlying companies. But we could have a we could have a quieter period for returns uh, going forward. That doesn't mean they'll be negative, but they could be quieter. Thank you very much. And Christoph, what's your view? Yeah. But indeed, of course, there is there is some impact today. Uh, everything that you see in terms of inflation pressure uh, puts pressure on 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 to some extent on on the margin of our businesses. Now, what we see is that a lot of our companies do have pricing power, so they can in fact also uh, translate part of the, the the pressure that they have on the margins uh, in in the pricing of their products or services. So, in that respect, up to now, we have seen that the impact uh, still was rather modest. Um, there are maybe two elements that are more of a, of a worry today. Uh, the first one is, is supply chain. I mean, that still is, is, is very, very bad today. Some of our companies could sell much more if they would have the technological components uh, to do so. Uh, so everything that is related with semiconductors uh, and other technological components, this is still, still a shortage of it. So it's, it's more an opportunity cost in terms of turnover, uh, than, but, but nevertheless still impacting uh, the further growth. And the other element uh, that we see in a lot of our companies today is finding the right skilled labor. Uh, indeed, there is some inflation pressure on salaries, but okay, that's still to be managed. But the problem is the, the, the lack of availability of skilled labor uh, that also hampers uh, to some extent uh, the further growth of our business as we would have liked it. Uh, and these two elements maybe are, are, are a bit more structural than the inflation pressure, because let, let's hope, and I don't have a, have a mirror ball neither, but let's hope that the inflation will normalize over the next, I'm not going to mention a period, but nevertheless, that it would be more of a temporary nature. But there are some other aspects in today's economy that, that, that we are uh, looked at, looking at. Uh, with, and of course, together with the management teams of our companies, we're trying to, to manage that as good as possible. But I think these two elements can also let, have some depressing uh, effects on, on returns versus indeed. And I'm totally aligned with what you said, Hamish, uh, that, that returns for this year and also maybe for next year won't be at the levels that we saw for the two last years. Uh, but let's wait. Uh, I mean, the second, second half of this year will be a very important one in that respect. Thank you. And Paul, what's your view? And are there any opportunities? Yeah, thank you. Um, look, I mean, I think, first of all, one, one thing to note is um, across private equity, I think this will still be um, a, a fairly significant year for fundraising, um, really based on the first half of the year, of course. Um, and the point I'm making is, uh, I think private equity remains very well capitalized as an asset class. And on the debt side, you know, we've seen the availability of debt from um, private um, funds as well. And so, you know, private equity has had the ability to continue to transact. Um, and, and I think uh, that that likely will continue in the second half. Um, but of course, the valuation issue becomes key. Um, you know, ultimately, when there's an uncertain ac economic outlook, then if prices aren't adjusting, of course, then uh, a fund would need to consider why they would make an investment now. And uh, that's what we're all waiting for, both in terms of existing companies that we own, um, but of course, in terms of the market, whether the public market uh, valuation adjustments, well, when that will um, sort of be reflected more in private equity. I think, um, 
ultimately, if the market's on the public side and the outlook stays where it is, we will see that begin um, to filter into numbers. We're all waiting now for all the second quarter numbers. And um, as Christoph said, you know, we'll have to see what happens the rest of the year uh, to fully know that. But um, I think the, the overall point I would, I would come back to is uh, the private equity market remains well capitalized and healthy, um, able to transact and, and willing to transact and you know, with a desire to transact in the right deals at the right prices. So I think things will slow down, um, but that doesn't, doesn't mean they'll come to a grinding halt necessarily. And in terms of opportunities, yeah, again, it's, I think it's going to take a little time. Um, you know, prices need to reset. We've seen, um, you know, there's the, always the possibility of public to privates. Um, private to privates, though, have the ability to choose their, their timing. So if we're an owner, um, you know, if a private equity fund is an owner of a company, um, then in most cases, they're not going to sell it unless they get the right price. And so what it means is they don't sell and they'll wait for a better time. And so I don't think we're seeing big price adjustments yet. Um, and I don't think we're also seeing really uh, companies in distress. And those would be the two things that would may- maybe lead to those kind of opportunities uh, that I think the question is uh, referring to. Um, it's just too early. So I'll go back to Christoph's comment. You know, it's really a wait and see. Um, but uh, history will tell us that if the environment continues as it is, there will be opportunities. And uh, I think private equity will be ready to act. Thank you. And I think Paul's answered this, but perhaps Christoph and Hamish can give their view. Looking at current deal flow on co-investments, are we seeing entry multiples coming down significantly following on from public market weakness? And Christoph, if you'd like to start off with that one. Yeah, sure. Uh, but in fact, what we see today, and it's already mentioned, indeed, fundraising has been very high over the last couple of years. So there is still a lot of money to waiting to be invested in private equity opportunities, which means that if an asset or an investment opportunity is very attractive in a lot of characteristics, pricing remains high. It's not that pricing in terms of new investment opportunities in private equity has fallen drastically certainly less than the capital than the public capital markets well i think what you see today is that there is a growing divergence uh, in terms of high prices for very qualitative business and that indeed some business where there are some uh, challenges or or where not not, not everything is, is going as expected that there maybe prices could fall uh, more drastically in terms of of entry uh, levels um, but if you're still looking for high quality companies with high quality management and growth uh, potential pricing as far as i see today is more or less stable uh, versus the last years Uh, and it also of course has to do with the fact that uh, competition is still very strong of course as well with all the money still waited waiting to be invested so less of a price reduction uh, than you would see in the public capital markets that's what we that's what we experience in 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 our uh, investment Thank you very much. And Hamish, what are your views? And perhaps does it make public markets more attractive? Um, I, my views are very similar to Christoph's. I would say that um, we may have seen at the margin a, a slight decline in pricing. 
but it's very difficult to tell at this early, this early stage. I think pricing in private equity tends to be quite slow to adjust in both directions. So I think, um, you know, we saw the stock market running up uh, to quite high levels at the end of last year. Um, although private equity did well, I don't think it extended its multiples anything like as much as the stock market. So the stock market, and not everywhere, but in most places, has come down a lot uh, this year. Um, you would, all things being equal, expect private equity not to come down as much. And in fact, if you look through on the historical record, looking at what happened in the global financial crisis, you tended to see that when you know when there's a full-blown bear market, yes, private equity will you know turn negative, but it will. The, the depth of the trough is quite a bit shallower than in the public markets and it takes a longer time to adjust. You know, you have a sort of shallower, a shallower sort of um, dip. I don't see that we're in that type of situation at the moment. We're not in a full-blown, you know, bear market in the way that we experienced in 2009. Um, but, uh, you know, so... I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if pricing came down a bit as we move into the later into the year, but there's not much evidence of that so far. Tremendous, thank you. And Paul, do you have anything to add? I know you sort of covered it in your last answer, but have you got anything to add? Not, not really. I, I, um, I would broadly agree with the comments. I think uh, good quality companies are still transacting at um, competitive multiples. And um, that's what's dominating the market at the moment. So it's, it's sort of a, a focus on resilience, high quality companies. Those are the deals we're seeing. Um, and those are still happening at, as I say, very competitive multiples. And I don't know if um, the three of you've got anything to add further on what you've said with this question. Why is there such a large discount to NAV in the last three months? Discount in some cases has doubled over this time. Um, perhaps, Paul, you go on with that and then we'll go back to Hamish and then Christoph. Yeah, so it's um, uh, obviously a really important question and one that uh, the three of us and many others are pondering um, on a regular basis. You know, I think there's probably two reasons. One is that um, there's, you know, the, the way private equity valuations work, um, ultimately, um, most funds value every quarter and it takes somewhere between six weeks to maybe maybe more like 10 weeks to actually get those valuations. And so there's always a concern, I think, that uh, investors have as to how private valuations will look and how they'll be affected by the market. And there's a real lag um, that exists in private equity. And so we've just finished the second quarter. Um, we'll get those second quarter valuations um, you know, they'll begin to filter into our own results uh, in, um, I, I guess, in, in August um, and then into September. And so I think there's, there's always that. There's, there's a lag in valuations. And so um, investors maybe factor in some type of discount when public markets are down as much as they are. Now, in the first quarter, I mentioned, our, our, you know, obviously public markets were down. Our, our privates were up 2%. And I think if you looked at the, the big publics, um, then they were give or take in, in that region. 
um, you know, around unchanged. Um, but honestly, um, the second quarter we'll have to see. But I think that's one factor. Um, and I think the the other is again private equity, maybe in part because of what I just said. But I think um, people sometimes do look at it as a riskier asset class because it's levered, um, because there's um, sometimes or often a little bit less information than you could get on a public company. And um, there's this perception um, because of that, that, that maybe it's riskier. Um, and I think those two things, you know, people are not choosing, people are choosing to hold more cash and to, uh, to take less risk. And, you know, we could, uh, it's a whole different subject as to, whether private equity is riskier. And, and, and again, I think we can all talk about our own portfolios and how they did during COVID and how they did during the uh, financial crisis and the same for private equity as a whole. Um, and again, because it's an active asset class, I would argue there's um, in a way an extra um, layer of um, ownership and operational value add that should be helpful um, in, in these type of environments. But uh, I think those are the two factors um, that, that are causing this uh, widening and discounts in the, in the market as a whole. And, and it really is, you know, I think if you look at um, the listed funds, then um, uh, pretty much everybody has broadened very significantly over the last three to six months um, in roughly similar ways. Thank you very much. And Hamish, do you want to give your views? Yeah, I mean, very similar to um, what Paul has just said. Um, you know, private equity, rightly or wrongly, is considered by most of the market participants to be a risky asset class. And when the market goes into a uh, risk-off mode, they tend to uh, reduce their holdings in the listed private equity companies and the discounts widen out. And the opposite is true. When the market goes back into risk on, the, the discounts will narrow. Uh, so I think that is, you know, that's the, the sort of principal reason. Uh, you know, we can have a big debate about the valuation of private companies, but um, I, I would say that um, private equity valuation methodology is naturally conservative. And when when companies are realized they're typically realized at quite a significant premium to the latest carrying value which is you know the living proof that the valuations are naturally conservative so in a way when the discounts actually uh, expand in the way they have done recently um you know they're becoming you know even cheaper these, these stocks are becoming even cheaper uh you know when they're on a smaller discount they're still quite inexpensive and uh, you know, with an expanded discount um, for a long-term investor, it's, it's a great opportunity to you know put put a toe in the water or start building up your position. You are likely from these levels to see a contraction in the discount over the long term. So rather than being a problem, I would um, you know as an investor, you could see it as a an opportunity. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And Christoph, have you got anything to add? Yeah, I mean. I'm totally agree with Hamish. So indeed, um, today, uh, there has been a correction on the market. But I think maybe another point that I would like to add is that today, private equity is, is, is put in a very general bucket uh, with regards to the valuation corrections that we have seen in the market. But the main correction in the market came from high growth uh, stocks that mainly have a lot of their cash flow still out in the future. And then, of course, if interest rates go up, 
the valuation models do get a correction. I think it's our task uh, to show that we are investing in companies that are uh, providing cash flows today, and that also that makes the valuation of our portfolio companies more stable than the high growth uh, technology stocks that were, uh, let's say, corrected the most on the capital markets. Uh, and so in that respect, uh, I think that the valuation of our portfolio indeed will be less volatile uh, than, than maybe what you see in the public markets. And therefore, indeed, uh, I, I agree with Hamish uh, and with Paul, uh, it provides opportunities uh, to step in uh, at interesting levels. Um, and indeed, exits typically do happen at premiums versus lost uh, valuations. For us, for instance, it's about 45% that we are in excess of the last uh, NAV. Doing that and also sharing part of your return on a cash basis with your shareholders sometimes creates a bit of a mitigation uh, on the discount versus NAV. And that's, for instance, valid for us. We typically are at a slight premium or a very small discount, but, but never at high discount levels. So the, the discount in itself is not uh, our main worry. Uh, that's how investors do see us. Our main task and worry is to continue the good performance of our portfolio companies and all the rest will follow. And whether it is at a discount or a slight premium, that's not something that that, that keeps us awake, to be very honest. Thank you very much, Christoph. And, and staying with you and also um, just a closing remark from the three of you, um, you know, we are entering a new phase for the economy. What are your closing thoughts? So, Christoph, if you want to start. Yeah, uh, I mean, of course, some challenges in today's uh, unstable uh, economy uh, for lots of reasons. We're not going to dig into that. Um, but I think in, in, in what we do and what private equity means in general, uh, I'm, I'm still very optimistic about the future potential of concrete for him for them of our portfolio companies, uh, of their capacity to outperform the markets and their peers in their sector, supported by our experienced teams. Um, and if we look at today's figures uh, and also the potential that they still have, I'm still rather optimistic that, that, that once we get into a more stable environment, and let's hope that that happens more uh, earlier than, than expected, then the potential is still out there. Uh, and I also think that private equity market in itself is still further maturing and that it will be a, a further strong source of, of value creation and hence also attractive shareholder returns. So in general, I'm still very confident about the future of the industry as a whole and also of him within that uh, perspective. Thank you. And Hamish, your views? Yes, look, I'm uh, I'm optimistic for the private equity sector in general and for our, you know, for our company specifically. I mean, private equity is it's a very um, it's a very pure form of capitalism. Uh, it has some very powerful drivers in it. Um, one of the most important ones is the alignment of interest that you get between uh, the uh, investors in private equity uh, funds, the managers of private equity funds, and the, the management of the underlying companies. And, um, you know, it's a very, it's a very clear uh, connection, you know, success uh, for the underlying companies uh, ripples up, uh, up the chain and the success for the private equity managers and for the underlying investors. And uh, 
in a in a and it's linked very closely in a way that isn't always the case in in other investments and um and then the other key attribute is the ability of the manager to get involved in the companies and to to help them grow and maximize their potential which just doesn't exist in other uh, other asset classes to anything like the same uh, degree so um you know the the disciplines are there it's well established it's expanding its remit uh globally um obviously it's well established in the in the US and the UK and increasingly well established in most of the european markets uh but there's still plenty of um scope for the growth in private equity there are many companies uh which would benefit from the, the use of uh, private equity to finance their growth and uh, so i see the long term as really really quite positive i think people are recognizing the benefits of private equity um we see excellent deal flow at all levels obviously we have to um be highly selective in which ones we do but uh, notwithstanding the you know the sort of turbulence we might see in the short term that we've just discussed i i'd be very optimistic for the long term it is the classic long term asset class you get very few investment asset classes where the uh, investment horizon is measured in you know several years as the you know the level of the individual investment and uh, for funds you know much longer than that so you know i would very much encourage people who are taking an interest in in any of these companies and in the sector to to just get on and invest thank you very much and paul have you got anything to add yeah so um i mean i think uh well said to Hamish on a lot of those points. Um, really, I think um, private equity is still small relative to the size of public markets. It has been growing, um, you know, over the, the long term. Institutional investors have been allocating more and more to the asset class. So I think there's drivers, um, you know, around the, the optimism that, that we all have uh, for private equity as an asset class to keep growing. And, and of course, um, that, that will only happen if it does keep outperforming um, public markets. And, and for all the reasons that we've, we've all talked about, um, you know, I, I have confidence that it can continue to perform strongly. And so, you know, I think there's, there's tailwinds to the asset class. And in terms of, of MVP, I would say, again, having a, a portfolio that's 107% uh, invested. Uh, we like our portfolio. Um, you know, we think we're... Uh, well positioned, even in a difficult market, and um, we're also uh, able and, and very willing to uh, participate when differentiated opportunities arise in this environment. Which, uh, the longer it continues, the more I expect that to be um, the case. So, um, very much, really, I think, echoing uh, Hamish and, and Christoph in terms of um, the, the general outlook. Of course, we've got. Uh, some difficult times ahead where our managers and our companies are going to have a lot of work to do. Um, but uh, fundamentally, we like the companies we are. Thank you very much. So many thanks to you, Paul, Hamish and Christoph for great presentations. We've had some fabulous feedback at this end. One summarising it saying, I think your performance is impressive and the discount on NAV is bonkers. So thank you very much. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.